This morning, if you turn your Bibles to the first letter to the church at Corinth, to the second chapter, a message entitled, Going Deeper. You know, much of the church, and again, whenever I reference the church, it's always much bigger than this church or us or you, but much of the church, the church in the world, the church that's the universal church, the body of Christ, wherever the church exists, I believe lives in milk. It never gets to meat. It really doesn't ever grow beyond those primary things. And though that doesn't mean that people who stay there are unsaved, I think it does mean that they're less than fruitful. And I believe that very often we settle for a type of Christianity that is very much the bare minimum. It is not that deep and rich and full life that Christ wants for us. It is a very minimal existence as Christians that I believe many people live. And that is sad. It should not be that we should be satisfied with the bare minimum of Jesus. Our lives are now hidden in Him. All that I am is because of Him. All I will ever be I owe to Him. Everything that we can ever hope for and dream for is found in Him. And it is rather amazing to me, and I mean no disrespect to anyone, I myself have walked in exactly what I just described to you. I'm thankful that that is no longer who I am, and I'm thankful that many of you also are desiring and seeking the deeper things of Christ. But I think it is very sad when we settle for less than God's best. When we're content with coming to church on Sunday and being saved. When, when we really look at our lives and we ask of ourselves, what, what is my life about? Is it about Christ? Because as we just celebrated communion, uh, your eternity has been secured by Him. We owe Him. And though that is not our sole motivation for serving the Lord and seeking the best things, it should be preeminent in our thinking every day. And the Lord has saved me. Connie and I were driving down the coast yesterday. We went to a wedding in San Diego. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful day it was. And as I sat there and I looked at it, I realized how blessed I am that the Lord has saved me. That the Lord has given me a rich and a full life. And and that the things that I enjoy, I enjoy because of who I am in Him. I, I could stare out at that coastline and it was one of those days where you got to Dana Point and you could see all the way down to Point Loma. You know, 80 miles was just beautiful. But you could see the whales. We were up on the 
top of Point Loma in San Diego looking down, and you could actually see the gray whales still migrating out there. You'd see spouts every once in a while. But in looking at that, I also realized how meaningless all that beauty is without Christ. We drove around the neighborhood up there, and and my family uh, comes from San Diego, the general vicinity of Escondido. My mom was born in La Jolla. You know, we're as native Southern Californians as, as you get. And we were looking at all these houses, and we drove around. And uh, for those of you that know the San Diego area, you know, a lot that's probably 60 feet wide and 100 feet deep on top of Point Loma is worth four or five million dollars. Ridiculous amounts of money. Junk houses sell for five, six million dollars up there. And we're driving around, and I'm just looking at all of this wealth and realizing, Lord, all of this without you would be meaningless. It'd be pointless. It's temporary. It can't satisfy. And I prayed this morning as we take these next ten verses here in the first letter that we will desire to go deeper. To find that work that the Lord wants to do in each of us and and seek to attain to do it. I pray that he would speak to us just as he did these Greek Christians in Corinth because we live in a very similar world. The world wants to hear fancy oratory. The world wants the next program. The world wants guaranteed things. If we do this, we'll get that. Family of God, if you have Christ Jesus as Lord, you have the one thing that will get you through to eternity. You may not have the fancy house up on top of Point Loma. You might never make it to a you know vacation in the Hawaiian Islands. But I can tell you this. What awaits us, as verse 10 says, is beyond our comprehension. And it's worth investing all that we are in. Amen? Verse 1 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know anything not to know anything among you, nothing else among you, nothing was more important. I had determined, Paul says, in his own heart that above all other things, there would be nothing that would be above or preeminent to Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Now remember where Paul is. He's writing to the most intellectual group of people that existed in the world at the time. The most affluent society, even more so than the Romans, the Greeks had been around for a while longer, and they really were better off from most standpoints. He's writing to people that were likely very comfortable He's writing to people who thought they were, in essence, better than the rest of the world. And so I can say to you, I think that to some degree, 
It's as if he were writing this letter to us today. Because those things are general truths. This country, there is no place like it on earth. And if you were to ask most people in the entire world, and I have traveled enough to say this is true, because I've asked people, of all of the places on the planet that most people would want to move and live and have their life, most of them would name Southern California. In vast majorities of numbers. When we lived in Austria, everybody wanted to live in Southern California. Traveled throughout Europe, everybody wanted to go to Southern California. They wanted to be near Mickey. Everybody wants what you already have. And yet to have what we have is still not enough. And it certainly isn't the best. And so Paul writing to these Greek Christians, these guys were confusing an artificial standard of faith. You see, I think that to some degree, Christians in America have an artificial standard of faith. It's philosophy. It's wealth. It's prosperity. It's beautiful oratory. It's PowerPoint. It's video presentations. There are a lot of things that I think we substitute for the real gospel message and for the simple life that we're to live in Christ Jesus. And I believe this message is for us because I think the Lord wants us to get past ourselves. Now, as I say these things, we of all people should enjoy the wonderful lives that we live while we're on this earth. I am not preaching to you anti-vacation or having a nice home or wonderful things. None of those things am I saying. But what I am saying is to fully be used of the glory of the Lord is to, as Paul would say, count all those things as lost for the excellency of Christ Jesus and knowing him. You see, sometimes I think that our Christianity is tied to our prosperity. Sometimes I believe our Christianity is tied to whether we do or do not have a nice home. Whether we're having wonderful new cars or not. And again, please, none of those things are wrong. All those things can be wonderful. But would you continue to serve Jesus if those things disappeared? Would you still love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and your neighbor as yourself if you didn't have those things? You see, the Greeks thought that if you were really spiritual, you would be intelligent, you would be wise, and you'd be prosperous. Little did they know what the world would look like in just a few years. That the world would be thrust into poverty like it's not probably ever seen. That a vast majority of the people who lived on the planet Earth would be a slave to someone else. You see, when they saw that, now do you know why he said, to those who are perishing, the cross of Christ is foolishness? You see, when we put things above Christ, we're acting just like the world. We're doing what the world does. And again, please, no condemnation on anyone. I'm not trying to speak a message of 
you know, you're doing the wrong thing if you're successful and you love your life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, is there something above Jesus in your life? Is there something that you would be unwilling to give up for Christ? Because if there is, you need to reevaluate and you need to look because that was the problem with the Greeks. That was the problem with the Corinthians. They wanted salvation, but they really didn't want the deep things of God. They wanted to kind of keep the Lord at arm's length. He was to have a place in their life, but not lordship. He was to be part of their life, but not all of their life. Christ to be Lord is to be all. And so he says to us, when I came to you, Paul's writing this particular letter in about A.D. 51, and he brings the gospel message, and he's already told us that it was foolishness. By human standards, you can look at it this way. Paul was not a best-selling author. He did not have a blog. He was never on television. He was not a handsome, well-mannered person. It's believed historically he was rather short, a little bit frumpy, kind of balding, and a little bit blind in at least one eye, if not both. When you saw Paul, you're going, that's the best God can come up with? You see, we gravitate towards human excellence. We, we gravitate towards the same things that captivate the world. And we need to be careful. One of the reasons I believe the church is so messed up in our country today is the church has gravitated towards things like numbers. The church has gravitated towards things like technology. And again, nothing wrong with any of those things. I've had the privilege of teaching in some very huge churches. And there's nothing wrong with those things inherently. But if we begin to take the gospel of Christ and say that it is only powerful when it's preached from a teleprompter, it only counts when it makes it into book format, it's only good if you can stand up as an author and say, well, I've sold 10 million copies of my book, then I think we're taking the gospel and condensing it down to the world's excellence. And there's a lot of things that the Lord does that we would look at from a human standpoint and go, wow, that's not how I'd do it. You see, we need to be grounded in the work of the Spirit. And he says here, I, I didn't come proclaiming lofty words or wisdom. Paul didn't just simply have a, a wonderful delivery most of you know I'm a rather voracious reader. I read a lot. I enjoy reading. It's one of those ways that my brain kind of gets unattached from the things of the day. And I can tell you there's an awful lot of things to read out there that don't have a thing to do with Jesus Christ, even though they're religious books, even though you'll find them in the Christian section in Barnes & Noble. Uh, a matter of fact, I've read a lot of things that, that they're simply man's plan. 
And I look at them and I, and I go, you know what? I need to get back to knowing nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. I need to get back to the simplicity of the gospel. It's easy to get caught up in the things of this world. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. When you're dead and gone, your miserable existence is going to take up about that much in a newspaper someplace for an obituary. If you're really famous, you might get a whole page, and that's it. And then after you're gone, ain't nobody going to care. I've often wondered what some of the founders of this nation would think if they came back and Jefferson stood in his own memorial there on the Tidal Basin in D.C. and looked up at that statue that's 40-something feet tall. I'm guessing that after meeting the Lord Jesus Christ that I would imagine he feels pretty small and insignificant. Huge in the founding of our country. But compared to Christ... Not so much. You see, we have a powerful message. And quite frankly, it requires a powerless messenger. And I want to qualify what I just said. If ultimately it becomes about delivery, if ultimately it becomes whether that person is tall and has a booming voice, if it becomes about the messenger, then the message can get lost. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for well speaking in in the manner of bringing the word. I hope that I do that. But I can tell you this, it's not my delivery that saves people's souls. It is not my teaching which is truth. It is the Lord God's truth that I hope to convey to you. And that message is his message. And I need to get out of the way and let him deliver his message. And sometimes in my own strength, and I speak for myself, in my own strength, I hinder the work of the Lord. Because I have characteristics that I think sometimes stand in the way of the Lord. I want to encourage you. It's the message that saves. It's not the messenger. I have, in my entire life, saved exactly zero people. I've never saved anyone. I've presented the gospel message which saves, but I myself have saved no one. So the message is what saves, not the messenger. Sometimes we get caught up in whether we have confidence or whether we're insecure. You know, we can have both those extremes. I have seen people come to Christ from the most ridiculous presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can imagine. I mean, I look at it and I go, how could somebody possibly commit themselves to to following Christ from hearing that? I, we had a surf ministry at Calvary Chapel Vista, and we'd go down to the Oceanside Pier, and, and I saw people give their life to Christ from what I thought was the most miserable presentation of the gospel ever presented. I mean, they could mess up the four spiritual laws. It, it was it was mind-boggling to me. And then I realized it was the message, not the messenger. 
It didn't matter that that guy had five words that were actually English. The rest was surf. Bro, it's like Jesus rocks. Okay, I repent. You know, it's like, how can someone get saved from that? Now, like I was shredding, I was down on the pier, and it was like, oh, so radical, it's like amazing. And Jesus spoke to me. And you're like, how does that present the gospel? And then you realize that that person's life has been exposed to these people, and they see the change. And the gospel in him is the reason that that other guy that saw his life before is going, whatever he's on, I want to be on it. And I'm pretty sure it's not drugs. We need to keep the message simple. Don't underestimate your ability to reach the lost just simply because you haven't gone to Bible college. Maybe you don't know your Bible very well. But it's the gospel that saves It's Christ and Him crucified that at the end of days matters. Period. Verse 3, he goes on now to say, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation now, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. I did not use wise and persuasive speeches, but the Holy Spirit was powerful among you. Family of God, what this simply says is, and it happens every single time we gather together, here on these pages, there are notes. You'll notice that I rarely look at them. Uh, That part needed to happen a long time ago, and it did. And as I get up to study in the morning on Sunday, it's like, God, please speak to your people. Sometimes I find myself just crying out, Lord, this is dumb. Why did I even put that on paper? It makes no sense. If I could show you these, you'd, you'd see that there's, there's lines and scribbling and extra highlights and things crossed out. And it's like, oh, Lord, uh, how you're going to speak to your people through this, I don't know. But here's what happens. Because I really do want God's will to, to occur in you and in us. I want him to be able to speak to you. By the time the words come out of my mouth, they are translated to your ears by the Holy Spirit. And I cannot tell you how many people have heard the exact same thing said to them through my lips, and they get two totally different meanings, and it's applicable to both. Because it's not the the persuasive speech. It's the Holy Spirit at work in this world using... Very weak and very flawed vessels. Vessels that at times just get up in the morning and go, Lord, how can you possibly use me? And so he says, I came in weakness. I love that. Here's why. Because if the Apostle Paul could acknowledge weakness in his own life, then so can all of the rest of us. We all have weakness. You have weakness. I have weakness. The church has weakness. There's no perfect group of people on this planet, and there's no perfect person. And that means to me that God can use all of us. Every last one of us. Doesn't matter how much education you have. Doesn't matter how much you read. Doesn't matter how many Bible programs you have or commentaries you've got. 
doesn't matter how fast you can type. None of those things actually matter. What matters is the message and that you're willing to be used by the Holy Spirit to speak the message to anybody who will listen. That's going deeper. You see, the Greeks thought, well, if I just study more, if I go to a certain school of thought, or if I hang around with a certain group of philosophers, I get this every once in a while. You know, people want to hang around those who are like the big guys. You know, they just flock to... John Corson could show up at an event and not say anything and a thousand people would show up. Why? Because he's very gifted. And I'm not taking anything away from him at all. I'm just saying people a lot of times are not actually coming to hear the message. They're coming to hear the messenger. They just happen to like the way he teaches. And there's some value to that. But it can't be the empowering reason. The empowering reason better be the Holy Spirit. And thank God in John's case, that's very clearly upon him. But he can also speak through guys who have little command of the English language. He can speak through you to that one person that I couldn't reach. Paul wasn't depending on his own studies. He was depending on God. And God is sovereign. And if we want the deep things, we need to depend on God for them. A lot of what we go through, I believe, in life is just God testing us to see if we're going to depend on Him. Whether we're going to cry out, whether we're going to say, Lord, I can't do this. You need to do it. Verse 5, it says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Please, in Jesus' name, don't depend on me. In the name of Christ Jesus, don't depend on me. Depend on God. Now, prayerfully, I'm not going to give you something that will hinder that. But I might. It's possible. I'm human. I try not to. I work very hard at that. And I think most pastors who love the Lord do that. I don't think most pastors sit out to intentionally cause their, the people that they minister to to be deceived. But every once in a while, we'll just say something completely off the wall. You look down at your notes and you're like, okay, well, I'll go with that. Because you wrote them. Then about two seconds after it's out of your mouth, you're going, oh, that was dumb. But praise the Lord for the filter of the Holy Spirit and the translation service that the Holy Spirit provides. You see that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. My dependence, your dependence, our dependence as a church is on the power of God. It's not on me. It's not on Calvary Chapel. It's not on Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. It's not on our affiliations here on this earth. It's in the very living, breathing relationship that we have with Christ Jesus as our Lord. Paul didn't want his listeners focusing in on that. And again, I, I just draw your attention to the books, the television programs, the movies, all the, none of those things are inherently wrong. But I know people who would not go to church were not their pastor and author. I know people who wouldn't listen to the message unless the church is, is filled to the brim. 
with other people. They, they get your, their spirituality from numbers, in essence. It's like, well, he must be of the Lord because there are thousands of people sitting there. And again, I'm not trying to make the negative analogy to the pastor or to the ministry, but rather saying just because there's a bunch of people listening to it doesn't mean it's truth. The message of the gospel is Christ Jesus and him crucified for our sins. And any church that gets lost in anything else, social programs, gets lost in political involvement, All of those things have a place in the church, but if they replace the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the church has ceased to be what it is supposed to be in this world. It's the gospel that saves. It's not a food ministry. I love the fact that we have a food ministry. But giving people groceries does not save them. The gospel saves them. Taking care of people's Bills, if they're, if they're behind on their rent, can't save them. Hopefully, it simply points them to my Jesus who can. We need to be careful. Because these pervasive things that are in our world can crowd out the gospel message. The deeper things of God are not all of the things that we as human beings cling to. They're not not more books, and they're not more TV, they're not more technology. They're more of Jesus. They're more of us recognizing that every breath I take for the rest of my days belongs to Him. All that I am belongs to Him. Everything that I am steward over belongs to Him. And notice he says here, but in the power of God. It's a, it's a word that uh, is very often spoken of, and it is the, this case, it's the Greek word dunamai. It's the plurality of power, explosive power. The type of power that accomplishes much. You know, it's not just some thought process. Well, the power of it's in understanding these principles. It's not that at all. It's literally the power of God. It's Christ in you that's your hope of glory. It's that kind of power. You see, some of these guys, as we already saw, were clinging to Paul and Apollos and to Peter. They each had their own little clique that they really liked. Well, you know, Apollos, he's just this super organized, intelligent guy, and Peter's really compassionate. And and Paul, he's he's just he's the old guy. So we want to go hear the old guy. When you start just simply going because of who the messenger is, that leaves you in the classification of babies. You should go for the message. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the gospel of God and salvation. Verse 6, he goes on now to say, Yet when I am among mature Christians... I do speak with words of wisdom. In other words, he tries to do the best he can. Family of God, I try and do the best I can. I try and do the best I can. I put all of my effort into what I do. I try to leave nothing undone. If I can do it, I want to put it in there. I I, I believe that God does use those things. 
I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world. It isn't just simple study. It's not the, the things that perhaps someone could learn. That's why it's a tragedy when people go off to seminary or go off to Bible college and they think, in essence, they just went to a professional school. I'm going to go learn this skill. I'm going to learn how to preach. I'm going to learn how to assemble notes. I'm going to learn how to do these things so I can make a living doing that. Anybody that goes into the ministry for that reason has gone for the wrong reason. Because it's never about the methodology or the messenger. It's always about the message. It isn't whether your sermon has two points or three points or five points. Every sermon should be a Texas sermon. There's two points, beginning and an end and a lot of meat in between. Longhorn sermon. doesn't matter how many points are in a message. I can tell you there are denominations that you can't pastor their churches unless you deliver five-point sermons. Frankly, I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see any of the apostles following that methodology. It's wonderful. Nothing necessarily wrong with it. But that's the wisdom of men. I know churches that you have to put up a PowerPoint outline so the people can follow along. Nothing wrong with it. But if you've come just to copy down an outline, you came for the wrong reason. It better be the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you there's a lot of really nice outlines, not much Holy Spirit. Yet I'm among mature Christians. And I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world. Not the kind that appeals to the rulers of this world. You see, when Jesus stood before Pilate, his words didn't do much. Pilate was saying, why don't you just say enough to get yourself out of this mess? I'll let you go. And Jesus answered not. Can you imagine how that looked to the world? That's the epitome of not having much smarts. Why don't you just say you didn't do it? Why don't you say you're not guilty? And yet Jesus offered not one word in his own defense. The world looks at that and says, well, that's not very wise. Yeah, it was. It was very wise. It was the wisdom of God, because that is exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. The prophet Isaiah said he would not offer up one word in his own defense, and that's exactly what Jesus did 686 years later. who are being brought to nothing. Notice the end of the world's wisdom. Brought to nothing. No, the wisdom we speak of is secret wisdom of God, which was hidden in the former times, the Old Testament times. They didn't have the full gospel picture, but now it's revealed. Though he made it for our benefit before the world began. You see, Scripture plainly declares that we were seen as those who were saved before the foundation of the world. There are Ephesians, the, book of the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians, paints this beautiful picture that God chose us before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blameless. He goes on to say, as Peter would write, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God always knew what he was going to do with Jesus. Never been another plan. 
That's the wisdom of God. Make no sense to people. You mean there aren't ten things I can do to get saved? It's one of those things that people will often ask me. What do I have to do to be saved? Just exactly like Nicodemus. What do I need to do to be saved? You need to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. No, there's got to be more to it. No, no, really. That's all there is. That's all there is. Well, you know, how do I know I'm saved? By faith. Trust. The world says, well, that, you know, that's not very religious. And I will usually say, exactly. Because religion is us trying to reach God. Relationship is what he did through Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. He said, you can't do it for yourself, I'll do it for you. You just need to tell people what I did. The Corinthians thought they would outgrow the simple message of Christ. Family of God, you never outgrow the message of Christ. It is the message. It's the Romans wrote. It's if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. It is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the rest of what happens is what God does by faith. The rest of what happens is grace poured out in your life. The rest of what happens is the world's way of saying that doesn't make any sense. Verses 9 and 10 as we close this morning. For however it is written, in response to this, think about it, in response to the simple gospel message, to the wisdom that's from God that seems crazy to the world, the deeper things of God are understood by faith. It is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived that God, what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by the Spirit. We see it through spiritual eyes, for the Spirit teaches all things, even the deep things of God. I pray we're looking for the deep things of God. I pray that we take that simple gospel message and it infiltrates every part of our being. Because it is the gospel in you that transforms each of us into exactly what God wants to do with us as individuals and corporately as a church. And then, in a greater corporate sense, the entire body of Christ all over the world. It's just a bunch of people who've been saved by the blood of Christ doing what God's called us to do that has the greatest impact on the world that we live in. That's the deep things. As the Lord reveals those things to us over time, as we learn to trust and what the Holy Spirit can do in us as opposed to what we can do of ourselves, we see the deep things of God unfold before our very eyes. And I pray we'll look for them. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, help us to not complicate the gospel. Lord, help us to not be looking for the next book, the next program the next PowerPoint slideshow, the next video presentation, the next piece of technology. Lord, we don't need to tweet you. We just need to have you in us. And we pray that you'd empower us by the Holy Spirit for the work that you've called us to. Lord, we're grateful as you can take a group such as us 
and use us for your glory. I pray if there's anyone here this morning, God has never responded to that very simple message that if we'll simply believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. Lord, there'll be people waiting this morning to pray that prayer. I pray that there would be no one who leaves without, without a relationship with Jesus. Lord, we bless you. We thank you. We love you. Lord, we give you our lives. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.